Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Angela Calabrese Barton, Professor of Science Education and the Learning Sciences. And I'm Leslie Rupert Heron Cole. I'm professor of science education and the learning sciences, and also a professor in the combined program in education and psychology. My research focuses generally on issues of equity and justice in STEM education, both in classrooms and in community centers. And so in particular, I study youth learning, especially in relation to the design of these different kinds of learning environments. Um, my research takes place in three related strands. So first I work at that intersection of formal and formal and informal education and how to break down the boundaries between school and community settings as a way to support um, youth in gaining access to and opportunities with science and ways that promote their agency in science. But I also work with teachers in designing teacher learning tools and experience that really support that same kind of agency development and identity development in science and classrooms. And then the third piece I wanted to say, and it's very much related to today's work, is that I also study participatory methodologies that really embrace what we call this research plus practice work that is really central to thinking about how research can inform on the ground actions but especially in ways that center and critically engages the goals of equity and justice. So in my own participatory work, it's not just including um, teachers, although I think that's incredibly important, but it's also including youth and community members as researchers. In terms of teaching, I teach classes um, in the educational studies department. Largely, I teach cultural studies and education. I teach science education courses. Um, I also teach science methods courses for beginning teachers, and I teach research methods. Okay, so I have a lot of overlaps with what Angie works on as well, So, which is why we're such good partners in this work together. Um, I came to the University of Michigan um, from the University of Washington in 2018, and I also work really deeply in partnership um, with practitioners um, to design, to kind of create design and study um, equitable learning opportunities um, for students in school and for youth and educators in out of school environments. And um, I would say I, I'm a learning scientist and developmental psychologist. So I take the perspective of kind of asking what makes learning powerful for the people who are learning. And then we try to create those environments together, looking toward the design, um, toward equity and justice for, for learners, especially underrepresented learners in STEM, because I also study in many cases, I study science learning. So um, I guess there, there are a lot of other interests that I bring in things like, um, creativity and thinking about the design of studio pedagogy and other kinds of pedagogical designs that Angie was talking about. But for today, I think the most important thing is that I, I, I study STEM learning and equitable design of those learning environments together with practitioners um, and with uh, increasingly with youth and undergraduates in those settings. This work, as Angie and I were talking about with our backgrounds, we bring a lot of um, collaborative work to the table. And this project is situated within two of our long-term research practice partnerships. 
one located in Michigan and the other in Washington State. And we sought to understand how and what community partners learn about and how they take action um, with respect to COVID-19 and justice related concerns. Um, and I think it's probably helpful to tell you some of our overarching research questions. So I'll focus on three of those. So how and what science do people learn about COVID-19 was is at the center of our work. How do people activate and apply the science they learn to make or revise personal and family decisions? And then how is youths and adults learning about COVID-19 shaped by their critical consciousness around racial, educational, and economic justice? Across the two different partnerships, and when Leslie mentions they're long-term, they're very long-term. So our Michigan partnership, um, we've been working with for 15 years. And our Seattle partnership, we've been working with for um, eight or nine years. And across these two sites, we've been working with 64 participants and about half of the participants are adults and about half are young adults and youth. And we've been engaging in you know, all remote methods because that's the world that we're living in right now. And for us, this has meant um, engaging in what we're calling long form dialogical interviews um, with our participants. We use Zoom like we're doing today, we use phone um, when that's easier, um, whatever kind of platform is easier for our participants. And these interviews, they last anywhere from 90 minutes to you know, 240 minutes, sometimes you know, split over a couple of days. And we really delve into the experiences that our partners are having with respect to you know, their learning and decision-making with COVID-19. And we, with each participant, um, we're engaging in three different interviews at three different time points during this pandemic. The first set of interviews was early on. Uh, the second set of interviews was, you know, this semester as people were going back to school and we'll be doing a third, what we were originally conceiving of is retrospective interviews in the spring, but with the, the length of this pandemic, we'll see, you know, how we ultimately end up thinking about that third round of interviews. We also have, you know, periodic informal conversations. This happens through Snapchat with some of the youth, um, by texting, messaging, lots of different ways in which we just have kind of this ongoing conversation with many of our partners. Um, and that's just kind of to keep that weekly, or it's even more than weekly check-in of just things that happen. And then the last method that we're using that we're really excited about is what we call experience method sampling. And by this, um, we're really um, engaging with our participants to share with us all of the different kinds of ways in which they've been engaging with COVID um, in, you know, in their lived experiences as they're trying to learn. And so we have this bi-monthly Google form that we send out that prompts you know, our participants for new information or experiences that they're having. Um, they share with us text, they share with us photos, audio and video. Um, for example, they send us links to different TikToks and you know, all sorts of really interesting um, pieces of information that they're using to you know, gather information to make decisions. One of the things that we really want to point out with respect to these methods is that these really have taken shape interactively as we've partnered with participants to co-generate data. You know, over time, this multimodal approach is really purposeful because we know that people have different ways of experiencing this pandemic and they have different ways of wanting to communicate it. It's not just learning is not just a cognitive um, process. It's a sociocultural process. It's a political process. It's an emotional process. We want to have all of these ways for our participants to express that. 
And the last thing I want to say in relation to the importance of having worked in these long-term partnerships, you know, for us, we've built over years relationships of trust and of shared vulnerability in our research practice partnerships. Many of our partners we call friends. And so this has really laid a foundation for us to engage in really critical dialogue on some challenging questions as we think about not just the COVID pandemic, but this multi-pandemic um, as COVID intersects with you know, systemic racism and economic injustice. And um, one of the things, of course, is, you know, you might imagine there's different, different platforms that different people prefer. And so many of the young people in our study, they're the ones we're engaging, you know, with Snapchat and TikTok. Um, for many of the parents in our studies, there's, you know, Twitter, Facebook. Um, of course, everybody's, you know, searching the internet. Um, but it's just been so interesting to hear the ways in which, you know, young people talk about how the kinds of information they get through the internet has been shaped by the algorithms that have formed through how they engage TikTok. And so just think about the brilliance that's in that kind of a statement coming from a 12 year old and how they understand the um, social and political ways in which knowledge is mediated. That's, you know, part of what we're trying to understand. One of the things that's so interesting about it is that also it seems very generational. Like Angie's talking about the 12 year olds and the teens, right? And using TikTok and things like that. And the parents using more Facebook and maybe Twitter. Um, and then we've got some folks who um, really prefer to stay away from social media and are accessing things only for like um, entertainment. And so they talk about intentionally curating their feeds to stay away from things, especially as we moved into the second interviews, right, Angie, that it became less about getting information yep. and, and more about thinking about how to, how to keep life moving toward uh, some kind of um, equilibrium and joy, right, in the midst of this, because you can be overwhelmed with that information as well. So even the young kids were talking about, the 12-year-olds were talking about how they were curating for that experience, and we found that the older people were doing the same thing. Like, I want to I want to look at comedians, I mean, and, and kind of think about the political satire and things we're finding there, not necessarily access all the things I was accessing at first, which was all informational. I think that one of the things um, when we when the pandemic first began, Angie and I started talking immediately with our colleague as well, Betsy Davis. We all teach in in science education within the School of Ed. And so we were really beginning to think about how can we use our expertise to try to make a difference in support of community health, well-being and justice during this pandemic and during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we, we know something about learning and we know something about learning in science. And so how can we use what we know um, and gather information and begin to kind of elevate the voices of our longstanding community partners within this mix, knowing that sometimes it can be difficult for community voices to be heard. And that was something that was very much in the forefront of our minds. That's right. And I'll just add on to that second point that Leslie was bringing up, you know, we're really trying to create and to create knowledge and to get out knowledge around how and why it is so critical 
to center and amplify the voices and the experiences of our community partners. Our community partners, we work with communities that are largely low-income communities of color. And these are the people who have shouldered the brunt of this multi-pandemic due largely to you know, a history of systemic racism and economic injustices in this country. And having their voices at the front and center of what it means to live and learn about, make decisions in, to care for a family, to help children survive and to thrive during this, this needs to be heard and this needs to be viewed as powerful expert insight into this pandemic. I think one of the things that's also important, Angie, is your, like, I realize we haven't really described the community context that mm -hmm. we're working in as yeah. we were just talking. So I think it is important to say that the community context that we're working in are are both similar and different from one another. So the Seattle context has um, is a long-term partnership with a multi-service community-based organization and the university where undergraduates serve as near-peer mentors to youth within those settings. So it's this really complex partnership, university, school partner, university, um, community-based organization partnership. And it serves low-income immigrant and refugee populations primarily. And so I think that is also a really important um, point that, that the sample from the West Coast is therefore incredibly, incredibly diverse and connects with a lot of continents and countries around the world. So we have found that to be a really interesting part of what we're learning is um, that we're learning a lot about how people have also relationships cross-nationally and are navigating issues across culture and language as well um, as kind of just thinking about the systemic injustices and the ways in which those things manifest here in the United States. So um, I think that's really, uh, that's a real strength of our study that the, that the populations are complementary to one another and really centering community voices. In Michigan, um, we work with a large uh, community organization in mid-Michigan, a large and vibrant community organization that serves um, predominantly low-income community that's uh, mostly multi-generational Black community, but also there's um, white folks and Latinx folks, so it's somewhat diverse, but um, but this is a center that we've been working with um, for, as I mentioned, 15 years, and there's, um, it's, it's not just a community center, like it's home. It's home for, for many of us. Many of the, the youth that we work with spend, you know, many hours after school there getting homework help, participating in programs. There are family programs. Um, and so parents and youth all participate. And so it, it just, it felt like a really important space to work collaboratively together to figure out how do we tell this story of this community? I don't think we're ever surprised by the brilliance of the youth and families that we work with. And so it's hard to say that anything would necessarily be, be surprising in that, in that regard. I think we learn things all the time about dimensions that we didn't really know on the surface that the youth were thinking about or the parents were concerned about or a new way in which they're navigating, developing a new piece of knowledge with a certain kind of cultural practice and how that interrupts kind of certain business as usual, like the ways in which you would go about interacting with one another in a cultural system um, and how kind of COVID-19 may be interrupting that. And so we're learning more about that, um, but I wouldn't say that would be so much surprising.
there's really rich learning that's continuing to happen. It's not just our study that's happening, but the ongoing routines of, of youth and families and educators, they're all still working on these issues and being very creative in the process, right? About mm -hmm. what they're doing. So one of the things they're doing um, in the West Coast is they're doing a world, the, um, an exercise or a unit called the world through food. And they have to, they have to procure all the ingredients and then take them around to youth's homes, drop them off, and then they have their um, screen set up in their kitchen as they're co-making these things, often with a valued or treasured adult inside the community, talking about some aspect of the food and, and food science and things related to it. So it's a pretty, I mean, it's pretty cool what, what our communities have been able to do in the midst of what I think is also a dominant narrative about how online schooling and all this stuff is failing, right, to support communities or that, that certain types of children or youth, I mean, particularly low-income students of color, students with disabilities, um, English language learners, those kinds of communities are targeted as, as you know, I think I saw some um, headline the other day that called it the lost generation. Like that kind of narrative, I think, is really um, oriented toward deficits and not at all what we're seeing in the communities we're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just tell a, a quick story on that point. So in our Michigan partnership, the youth who are participating in this study are so engaged in figuring out how to tell their story and to get it out there beyond this project that in one of their after school STEM clubs, uh, it's a STEM rich maker club. So it's a maker space, but it's now online. Youth are meeting through Zoom. They're using this online after school program to find multimodal ways to construct their 2020 story. And I think that's so powerful because they're, they're using the skills and practices of their communities, as well as of STEM rich making to construct these multimodal representations of 2020. And it really captures how none of the young people we work with, well, I'll speak for the, the Michigan site, see COVID as separate from these other social pandemics that have been going on for generations, right? Their experiences with COVID are tied to systemic racism. Their experiences with COVID are tied to um, increasing economic injustices. We've had families had to move in together because of lost jobs, the need for childcare. I mean, these are real issues. And to tell one's COVID story separate from them is to deny one their life and their experiences. So, I mean, kind of carrying on with this theme, we think it's really important to remind people that on this project, we're a group that brings together both academic researchers and community partners and community organizers to study, you know, the youth and family experiences of COVID-19 in connection with issues of equity and justice. And we have to remember, you know, as we've been talking about today, that we've witnessed these compounding social pandemics. And so from what we've learned, it doesn't serve or protect communities to silo COVID-19 from these simultaneous pandemics, nor does it maximize any type of effective or successful response. So when we can think about it, you know, the CDC reported just last month, November 2020, that COVID-related death rates are about four times higher for Black, Latinx, and Native American, Indigenous people compared to white people. 
Just take a moment and let that sink in. Four times higher. And multiple studies have confirmed that medical professionals demonstrate implicit biases just as much as the general population does. And so we feel that it's an imperative that we have to listen to, we have to acknowledge, we have to respect the multiple forms of expertise and lived experiences such that our community partners bring not only is valid, but is crucial in this knowledge building for our shared survival. And so I think to really kind of capture this, I wanna tell you the experiences of one of our, our youth partners and we'll call her Jasmine um, for the sake of this podcast, um, who explained she was highly active in um, issues of racial justice. She is highly active in issues of racial justice. And she explained that she was doing research online through TikTok and other means um, to figure out viral transmission and e efficacy of various mitigation behaviors because it was really crucial for her in making a decision on whether and how to physically lead organize and participate in in-person actions during the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests back in June. And so she contextualized her assessment of you know, the local COVID risks um, within her knowledge of these additional physical risks she would face in that decision to protest anti-Black racism and violence. So with this example, I think we can think about how community wisdom calls us to recognize what's really an really a moral imperative we have to respond to COVID-19 as this compounded social pandemic. You know, community wisdom calls us to consider how community relationships, how cultural practices, how contexts mediate the processes of learning and acting and decision making. And so any and all decisions regarding healthcare, risk mitigation, vaccination, and public responses should be viewed, should be accounted for through this, you know, complex lens. Um, I, I just want to share a quote with you that Jasmine shared with us during one of our interviews. She said, and this is a quote, I had to decide whether to protect myself and my family against injustice by protesting or to protect myself and my family by not going to the protests. And so she said this decision, you know, this involved this complex analytic process of weighing these different data sources, you know, looking up current local infection rates, um, but also looking at photos of recent protests just to gauge how participants were wearing masks. But then she also brings in this other layer of what it means to wear a mask as a black person. And she says, and I'm just going to give you one more quote. She said, let's say I go into a store by myself wearing my mask like I'm supposed to. I'm now scared to buy something because they can still tell I'm black. And I walked into the store with my hands in my pocket and I have a mask on. We're portrayed in the news as the bad guys. So everyone thinks we're the bad guys. There's no winning. I mean, how do we make decisions around COVID-19 without considering these complex intersecting pandemics. Yeah, that seems really important, I think, Angie. Um, and to think about at the same time as we're looking at community wisdom, we're, we're also thinking about how do we communicate to the scientific and academic community that the idea of 
developing knowledge about COVID-19 and taking action is, is perhaps more complicated than is typically thought of. Because I think a lot of the prevailing and perhaps overly simplistic and kind of hyper-rational models of knowledge construction suggest that it's this linear process. You develop knowledge of something and then you take action based on that knowledge. But Angie's example from Jasmine, and we have several from the West Coast, we had um, several participants of Asian backgrounds who told us early on that they, through their deep connections with family and friends in Asia, that they had early opportunities to learn about the virus way before March when it became you know, a threat here in the US. And they understood the need to take precautionary measures such as wearing masks um, that was a common practice in many of the Asian countries and cultures from which families have come and they still have deep connections. And yet early in the pandemic, mask wearing was not routine practice in the US and especially before March. Um, so our participants worried about this, knowing it's possible that wearing a mask might unintentionally communicate, quote unquote, I am sick, rather than at that point, I am being a responsible community member. Um, and these same participants also reported experiencing um, various forms of racism, both verbal and physical kinds of threatening behavior, um, being concerned about riding public transportation, walking down the street with a mask on, especially if you are an Asian person, um, not unlike what Jasmine was also reporting, right, in terms of those choices, um, and that they feared that they could be further targeted as a result of choosing to wear those masks. So although they understood that mask wearing would maybe have helped for them early on, they made maybe sometimes the choice not to do that. So in this example, it points to that kind of complexity of acting on new knowledge inside of cultural systems, right? Not apart from them, not in that linear way, but in this very dynamic, complex way where systemic forms of oppression exist and typical routines and practices have been challenged by that. And so I think more than anything, if we can say that this process of knowledge development and kind of action taking is way more complex than we think and that this study can help us not only recognize the wisdom of communities but also maybe change some models that we have about how we're thinking about developing knowledge of critical socio-scientific issues like COVID-19 and the multi-pandemics that have intersected in 2020. You know the last thing that I want to add kind of you know summarizes what is one of the big themes here today. And that is that, you know, we want to call on policymakers, decision makers to make room, you know, at the decision making table for people who live and work in our most vulnerable communities. They should have a seat at the decision making table too. And their participation shouldn't be treated as just mere tokenism, but really an effort um, to really substantially engage with and learn from the wisdom of the communities they represent. I agree. And I think that goes equally um, for educational policymakers as well. So not just policymakers in kind of a healthcare context and understanding mm -hmm. those issues, right. but also educational policymakers and in kind of thinking about return to school and things that will happen as the pandemic proceeds. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.